Thank you for attending this Sunday morning. I'd like to extend a good morning to, from, from Phoenix, Arizona to anyone who's watching on video. Uh, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and for those watching in the future, we've just taken our second plan steps of getting back to our pre-COVID-19 worship activities. And while I'm glad for this cautious progress, it means I lost 15 minutes of presentation time, so let's get started. I've updated this lesson as a follow-on lesson to the series presented by Buddy Pang. This spring, leading up to the shelter-in-place measures and other lockdown steps um, to limit COVID-19, Buddy presented an excellent series on how there is design in the creation that is all around us. And I was curious, though, how it would fit the topic that I was preparing regarding the age of the earth and the design implementation implications of creation. I thoroughly enjoyed watching Buddy's series that you can find online, and I was thrilled to see Buddy present the chemistry facet of science, something that I am not qualified to present. My knowledge and understanding is on the physics facet of science. And if you're watching this video online, I'd suggest going and watching Buddy's series before watching this presentation. Um, everyone here, however, in my captive audience should have already watched that series. And by 20 minutes into his first lesson, Buddy presents something that I was going to cover, but he did it so much more eloquently. And that is that people looking at the same data do not or always arrive to the same conclusion. And that is most obvious in nature and unfortunately in scripture. This morning, my goal is to encourage you and to anchor your faith, and to enable you to answer false teaching with confidence. My hope is that you apply this knowledge to future Bible study. So this morning, we're going to pick up where Buddy left off and look at a simple question. We're going to look at the biblical accounting of time. There were several questions during the spring meeting about the age of the earth. In the recordings, there was not a direct answer given. First, we're going to look at six steps to remember the age of the earth. And this is useful for everyone as an overview, especially for the younger listeners and new Christians who are just growing in faith. Second, we're going to look at scripture that back up the accounting of time. And third, how the Bible timeline has application in God's book of Scripture and in God's book of nature. I'm not good at memorization. Um, unfortunately, because of the time constraints, I'm having to read this almost like a script. And when it comes to things like Bible history and dates, I just have to be able to focus on key points in Bible history. It's helpful that 500-year increments just happen to align with major characters in the Bible. We have Jesus, Zerubbabel, David, Moses, the patriarchs, Noah, and Adam. Now let's look at these um, going backwards in time, but let's start to today. And today we have a view of the universe unimagined 100 years ago. We've been through the Industrial Revolution. We have a macro view of, our, of the creation that is unimaginable. And we also have an equally amazing micro view of the creation. 
And plus, we have the added benefit that the Bible is available all across the world in many languages. And so it's important to calibrate our fast-paced minds to what 500 years of time is. 500 years ago, Columbus sailed to the Americas. Luther started a religious reformation. In that time, we've ex the Europeans have explored, colonized, settled, developed this land. There are now one billion people in North and South America. There's been pandemics, wars, and detailed history, and the further back in time we study, less history is actually preserved. And that's gonna be important for our study. And so as we realize how great the number of events and things that happened in 500 years, that will allow us to appreciate this timeline even more. <clears throat> so 500 years prior, we had the Middle Ages. We had this Guido who did the musical reformation, and that's actually the musical annotation that's in our songbooks that he created. 500 years before that, Rome fell and the Middle Ages started. The Catholic Church grew because of the social and political vacuum that was created due to the fall of Rome. And at what we're going to call zero, that's when we read about Jesus. That's 2,000 years ago. That's a long time, but it's easy for us to remember this because we're on this time's side of the cross. Now, as we go back further, at 500 BC, we have Zerubbabel. That's, that's when Israel came back from captivity. City is rebuilt, the wall is rebuilt. The temple, to their shame, though, is not rebuilt yet. Prior to that, we have King David at 1000 BC. We have Moses at 1500 BC. We have the patriarchs, which are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was renamed to Israel at 2000 BC. At 2500 BC, we have Noses, Mo Noah and the flood. And at 4000 BC, we have Adam being created on the sixth day. So if we put those in order, on a, on a scale, we have an easy timeline that we can remember. And I want to just focus on the ones that are darkened today. And if you've done the math in your head, you should realize it's 6,000 years. And we can remember the dates in reverse order from Jesus to Adam in six very easy steps. Once again, that's Jesus, Zerubbabel, David, Moses, the patriarchs, Noah, and Adam. Seven people, but six easy steps to remember. So we'll address the age of the earth question a little bit later, after we've confirmed these numbers in scripture. I don't know if you guys remember this, I certainly do, but Sean's second lesson was about three questions. And the second of those three questions was, who said that? I re that really impressed me, because you shouldn't just take things as evidence, as fact. We want to go to the Bible and see what the Bible accounting of these this time is. And so as we look at Adam and Noah, Adam to Noah, in Genesis chapter 5, we have 
the genealogy of Adam. And in Genesis chapter 7, verse 6, we have Noah at the age of the flood. Now, Brian gave a lesson um, regarding inductive Bible study, which was very good. Um, and Logos Software supports this markup, and that's why I recommend it and use it in my Bible study. And as you can see here, I have um, done some markup. And what I do is I, and it's hard to read, I realize, but the pink are people, the gray is time, and then the brown is time again, but that represents whenever the person dies and goes back to the earth, and the earth I use to associate with the color brown. So if we take these gray numbers and add them up in this genealogy, it equals 1,056 years. And then if we take Genesis chapter 7, we see that Noah's age at the flood was 600 years. And so as a summary, you add those two together, and we get 1,656 years. And so that accounts for the 4,000 BC year association with Adam and the 2,500 BC year association with Noah. And I want to point out here that as we go from Adam and Noah to Noah the patriarchs, that these increments of 500 years are not tied to key events. These Bible characters were alive in these corresponding years. However, sometimes it was towards the beginning of their life, and sometimes it was towards the end of their life. But we can count 500 years increments and recall those dates to give us a very large, high-level view of these dates and characters. And now as we look at from Noah to the patriarchs, there's two key passages that help us with this time frame. Genesis chapter 11, we have the genealogy of Shem. In Genesis 21, we have age of Abraham um, when, Isaac was, when Isaac was born. <clears throat> was born. Um, and so if we look at Shem's descendants, we have the same thing as we looked at previously. And if we add those numbers up, we have 392 years. So as we look at this, we realize that um, from, from Noah to the patriarchs, the genealogy of Shem being 392 years, um, there's a little bit of back time regarding the age of Abraham when Isaac was born, being 100. And so those two numbers, when we add those up, account for 492 years. This accounts for the 2500 BC association with Noah, and the 2000 BC association with the patriarchs. Remember now that patriarch Jacob was 130 years when he was settled, when settled in Egypt. And that's going to be used to account for a little bit of the time in the next step. And so we also want to acknowledge to those that are new to the Bible that there are some changes that happened to the flood. And we want to be careful regarding speculation on these times. There's 500 years um, between the flood and Abraham, where there's a rapid change in the average lifespan, and the Bible records this for us. Now, after the patriarchs, there's still continued declines, but they're much less noticeable, and this is material for a different study. But next, we want to go to the patriarchs and Moses, and remember that Jacob was 130 years old um, whenever they settled Egypt. Well, there's a prophecy given to 
Abraham regarding his descendants, that they would be afflicted for 400 years in Genesis chapter 15. In Exodus 20, uh, 12, verse 40, after the children of Israel leave Egypt, this is actually recorded um, that there was 430 years between whenever they um, settled in Egypt and whenever they left. And that lets us know that there was roughly about 30 years where they lived, lived peacefully with Egypt. And that's recorded in, uh, in Joseph's life. And so now we have <clears throat> 560 years, which accounts for the windows between the patriarchs and Moses. The last step is between Moses and David. This has the period of the judges, which is often recognized for its challenges with dating the material. However, 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1 helps us to skip over all those academic arguments, and it records that to the day, it was 480 years after the exodus from Egypt to whenever Solomon started building the temple. Solomon was the son of David, so that was just one step forward past David. Um, but that accounts for the, for the um, <clears throat> 500 years between Moses and David now. From David to Zerubbabel, the written records are a staple of the historical record. Um, there is 500 years between, uh, that are recognized in both biblical and secular records. Um, and so um, attached to the website is an Excel spreadsheet. I've sent it to the elders in the past. I know Dale's studied it in great detail, but it actually breaks down the kings into a year-by-year -year record. And it's so detailed, and it's interesting to note that the southern kingdom counted the first year of a reign, and their calendar starts in the fall. And the northern kingdom and the rest of the world, they dismissed the first year. They just did not count that year, and their calendars start in the spring. And so, to further complicate this and make academic detailed studies of this, um, people um, realized that the scribes in the southern kingdom, when writing about the northern kingdom, would use their own timeline. And then the opposite occurred for the northern kingdom. But this just is there to emphasize how detailed these records are. And so as we look from Zerubbabel to Jesus, or in the slides as it says, the restoration to Jesus, there's not a lot of detailed Bible accounts. We realize that there are 400 years where there are no writing prophets, and that the prophecy of Daniel can be confirmed through secular records. Um, the 500 years is not in dispute. However, the exact years of Zerubbabel are not quite certain um, for the beginning and end of his reign, but we know that the year 500 is accurate for um, Zerubbabel being alive. And now to re review again, we have 4,000 years between Adam and Jesus. And there are six easy steps, again, to remember this. The seven times are Jesus, Zerubbabel, David, Moses, the patriarchs, Noah, and Adam. <clears throat> and so it's useful to, for us to commit this to memory and to also apply it to our Bible study. And so now I want to look at the Genesis account as we apply this information um, to the Word of God. So realize, as we look at today to Adam, it's 6,000 years. 
I just can't emphasize how short, but at the same time, how long period of time that is. Now, if you go back halfway, that's all to David. And if you go back a little bit further, just 500 years, we're looking at Moses. And that's important because we want to we want to recognize that Moses is the inspired author of Genesis. That means between the creation and Moses, there was 2,500 years of oral record. There's 1,500 years into that time, at the time of the flood, that every recorder died, except for two senior recorders and six junior recorders. And then, after that, to further complicate things, there was 400 years of polytheistic programming while they served the false gods in Egypt. So that's 2,500 years of oral record. And if we try to think back 2,500 years, if we had nothing written, and we wanted an account of what happened at the restoration of Israel, and all we had was the oral record, we realized that that just would not be a credible source of information. It would be highly unlikely that we'd actually have the details. One thing um, that I really appreciate is that Ryan Goodwin described um, Genesis in Bible class as a corrective text. So studying Genesis with that perspective really helps to unwind some of the confusion that is in, in, injected um, into those scriptures. Genesis is written to correct many things, including the creation record. Um, we don't have time to spend to, try, to drive this point home, um, but if I told everyone in this room that if you give me $100 that I can make you a millionaire, that would be maybe exciting, maybe interesting, skeptical, many thoughts, but actually I can. See, I can take $40 of that 100 you give me, convert it to Vietnamese dollars, which is called a dong, and congratulations, you are a millionaire by Vietnamese standards. But it saddens me greatly when something as simple as a day which is a standard of time, is questioned. So why would God, in a book that's designed to correct false teaching, why would he change the meaning of a day? Remember, this text is written to Moses and the Israelites to correct their false teaching. And so why would he trade Egyptian false teaching for evolutionary timeline-like false teaching in the book of Genesis? That doesn't seem like the character of God, and it does not make sense from a corrective text point of view. And Sean just presented us a lesson about the truth and how valuable it is. And so we want to look at the six days of creation, but I want to recall in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 13, how the Thessalonians were, were um, commended because they received the word of God not as the word of man, but truly as the word of God. And that phrase, that's always been impressive to me. Now, apparently they took it 
and didn't study like the Bereans, but nonetheless, when we have the word of God, we need to treat it as that credible type of information. And so what does this mean for the six days of creation? So context allows only that they should be a 24-hour period. And there's a logical flow, actually, from what I've seen uh, studying God's word to creation. Um, the first day, there's light and dark. Well, let me start like this. The first three days appear to be partitioning, and the, three, uh, the, uh, the fourth, fifth, and sixth days appear to be populating. And so the, you have light and darkness, water and air, water and land, partitioned on the first three days, and, the land, and then the earth is covered with vegetation and preparation for the next days, for the beasts of the field. And then in day four, we have the population of the sun, moon, and stars. We have water and air creatures on the fifth day, and we have humans and beasts of the field on the sixth day. And this seems to be a very logical way to remember and to, to look at the six days of creation. Um, <clears throat> sorry, Brian, got ahead of myself, but you can keep them off. Um, <clears throat> so why the long day theory? I believe this is happening because conclusions have been drawn with wrong priorities. Let me give you an example. A very familiar example is misdirected Bible study, and that's opening God's word to prove oneself right. I mean, how many times, Sean, have you, have you gotten, hey, preacher, doesn't it say that, you know, that people try to go to the Bible, unfortunately, prove themselves right. But that as another example, there's an open-minded study versus rigid concepts. And what should be the foundation of our theories? I mean, the scientific method is a good method, and it is proven to work. But should we start with observations of man and then try to reconcile that to what the Bible says? Or should we start with the Bible as a, as a, a credible source and then look and see how those things that are written in there fit our observations? And so in the Genesis account, we recognize there are many details left out. In the macro universe, galaxies are left out. For, um, in the micro-universe, microbes, fungus, protozoa, bacteria, viruses, those are all left out. And I really appreciate um, Buddy for giving us excellent series and talking about those. Um, and now, I want to look, though, at some of these parts, these unseen parts of creation. And I want us to be impressed with how awesome the creation is regarding the macro-universe. And so we're, this is a, a map um, that was done in the year 2000 by National Geographic, and I know it's a little bit hard to see even with the lights off, but I want to step through this very quickly here. And so the way you read this map of the universe is there's five different zoomed-in points. And so we're going to look at each one of these five zoomed-in points, starting with this first one down here. And we recognize this. There's our sun, there's the earth, and that's where we're at. And it just happens to take five and a half hours for light to get from the sun to Pluto. And so five and a half hours is, in the grand scheme of things, is a fairly short amount of time, especially on this map. But if we zoom out to the next point, and we look at where our solar system sits 
in, um, in our galaxy, we see it right here in the yellow. And what was interesting to me was I was very curious um, uh, whenever I was uh, studying about the creation is how far away is the closest star to us? Uh, that would be Alpha Centauri. And Alpha Centauri, its light's been hitting us, and it only takes four, a little over four years for that light to hit us. And this map right here, if you can see it, it's 20 light years um, from the center to the outer ring. And so uh, from our point in the galaxy um, to, to all these places, it only takes 20 light years to see this. And so we can easily see that. Um, and now, as we go to the next zoom level, it zooms out, and unfortunately, that was 250,000 light years. And so that's, that's too much zoom. But you can see right here, this is where we are in the galaxy. And so I want to take a zoomed-in look at this. And luckily, um, National Geographic's did a map of our galaxy. And unfortunately about that, though, it was from the year 2000. And these things, because of the Hubble, Hubble Space Telescope and other um, scientific discoveries, that's a, a lot of these things have changed. But what I want us to realize is here where we, here's where we are in the Milky Way galaxy. And as we zoom into this point, we can see some of the things that may have been familiar to us from Buddy's study. Remember he was talking about the different sized stars and how the biggest one was Antares? Well, there it is right there. And it's relatively close to us, and we can see it. But what was really interesting to me about this National Geographic graphic map of the galaxy is there's a ring right here on it. And this ring that I've highlighted here, it says 6,000 light years. That 6,000 should be a familiar number because that's what we just looked at on our timeline. And so another interesting point as I've studied is this blue line that I put in the, the chart. 4,000 light years is the furthest that we can actually see with our naked eye. So part of the curiosity for me doing the study was, can we actually see light that God created en route from the stars? Now, I thought that would be kind of neat. Sorry, you can't. And that's because we're, we can only see with our eyes on Earth looking up in the sky this area. And inside of this area, there might be 9,000 stars that we can see, um, but it's still all the light that's hitting us that we see at night is light that's actually been produced by stars since God populated them on the fourth day. And so let's take these rings and zoom out and see where, where we sit um, as on the uh, map of the universe. And I've blown the, the ring up to be um, 6,000 light years. And so as we go from the Milky Way and zoom out even further, we come to a point that has 2 million light years. And here's the Milky Way galaxy. Here's Andromeda. And for Stargate fans, here's the Pegasus galaxy right here. And that's what makes science fiction so good is because it's a lot of times based on actual uh, factual information. So as we zoom out even further and look at the universe the biggest plot on this chart, we see it's 75 million light years. And 
That to me is really impressive. And here's our uh, Milky Way galaxy. And this is the map of the universe. And it shows out to 75 million light years um, in the year 2000. This is a picture from the Hubble Space Telescope. And I wanted us to get a, a comparison of what that map showed at 75 million years and as compared to what the Hubble Space Telescope can actually see. So this right here, and there's no way I could remember this, is MACS 0647-JD. And it's the farthest known galaxy from the Earth. The map was 75 million light years. This galaxy, as detected in, by Hubble, is 13.26 billion light years away. What's really exciting to scientists about this is they think that this is actually really close to the edge of the universe as the universe is expanding. It, you can, they believe you can only go out about five, um, I think it's 500 million more light years to, to get to the edge of the universe. And while they see that as probability, statistics, long dates, and um, support for the theory of evolution, which I think Buddy did an excellent job of, of disproving, to me what that helps me understand is that when God created the universe and he created it, he created it with a limit. Because to be honest with you, thinking of a universe that's infinite is kind of hard to comprehend. But to me, in, in my faith, I, just, I, 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 can, I can wrap my head around God creating something that has a limit, but we know that someday that God's going to take it all away and, um, and destroy this creation. And so, if you can't, didn't get a good picture of this, that is the galaxy, all nine pixels of it, as far as that space telescope can see. What's interesting about this is there's been a number of, of proposed space telescopes for, to actually take better pictures of distant galaxies like this. And quite a few of them over the past two decades have been um, canceled by NASA. But I think NASA actually had a, a marketing guy that was really smart. He told someone that they were going to build a Star Destroyer with a Death Star gun on top of it. This is actually the James Webb Space Telescope that's supposed to launch next year. Um, it's been slightly delayed because of COVID, um, but here it is actually being built in the NASA Center. And this is science. These are things that we can observe in God's book of nature. And I'm really excited to, to see if, if they actually determine that, yes, that is the edge of the universe, and we get good pictures of those galaxies, or if we're going to um, not, uh, um, or if we're going to have other um, discoveries made. And so the conclusion is that Sean's, um, sorry, the, the conclusion is that God had to have created the planets on the fourth day and populated their light as it traveled through the universe um, uh, towards us. And while that might seem a, a, a big 
discovery, um, we shouldn't put a limit on God and his creation. And so, looking back at this, I hope we realize that if we take Bible facts and apply them to what we observe, that we should be able to get the um, understanding that would help ground our faith. And so, one of the things that I want to show really quickly here is that whenever Jesus was born, that there was a star that appeared. And so hopefully that just helps you to see in Scripture how God, whether this star was so far away that light just finally got to earth on when Jesus was born, or if he actually placed this in the sky whenever Jesus was born, that it's not unprecedented for God to control stars and light as it's in route and traveling through space. After all, it is his creation. So looking at the microscopic universe, Buddy covered this very well. I just wanted us to get an idea of size here. You can see cells in the human, uh, cells are of various sizes. Viruses are smaller, um, plant cells, animal cells are big. However, bacteria cells, they're smaller, and there's a wide range. And so whenever I tell you these numbers, I want us to compare really quickly the macro universe with the micro universe. They believe that there's 200 billion galaxies in the universe. In our body, in a human, there's 37.2 trillion cells. So you have, a you have 200 billion galaxies in the universe. Human body has 37.2 trillion cells. That's a thousand, um, a trillion being a thousand more than a billion. A whale has 50 quadrillion cells in its body. And so what I want us to look at to help further our, 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 our faith in God's creation is the fact that I can take a shovel of dirt, pick it up, throw it on the ground, and it's really big relative to a computer chip. But we realize that in a computer chip, there's so many intricacies and details and things were designed just right for that cell phone to work. But that pile of dirt, while it's big in volume, it does not have the intricacies. And that's how I think of the macro universe with the stars and the galaxies out there as just piles of dirt and gas and rock that, got, that has been thrown out there, some of it beautifully designed, by the way. But our, our bodies and the microbes that are on us are the detailed fine-tuning work that God's done, and all of this is a balance. And so let's, let's uh, look at the genealogies of Jesus and then conclude the lesson. <clears throat> we have four Gospels, and in two of those Gospels, Matthew and Luke, there's genealogies. And here's an overview of the Gospels and who they were written to and how Jesus was described the son of David and Matthew and the son of Adam and Luke. And if we look at these genealogies, we quickly see that there are kind of, it doesn't quite seem right. See, I grew up in studying the Bible thinking that these were actual sons of actual sons, but that's not how this was recorded. If we look in Luke, we see the same thing, um, and you might catch that Moses is missing here, and that makes sense because he's not a direct descendant of Jesus, 
Um, but to calibrate ourselves on what genealogies meant to the Israelites, we have Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Huge generational um, skips here. And that's because the genealogies were for land rights to Israel, for who should be the priests. And so as we look at this, these genealogies and apply the timeline in our head, we can look at, at you know, somewhat tedious scriptures such as the genealogies and actually glean information from them and realize, oh, this, something's not right here and further our Bible study. And so there are differences in the genealogies and here's different themes to help possibly um, uh, further your study on why those differences are there. Um, and we don't really have an answer, but these are just some of the three uh, prevalent ideas. And so one last time, let's look at this timeline and try to commit it to memory. 4,000, we have Adam. 2,500, we have Noah. At 2,000, we have the patriarchs. 1,500, we have Moses. 1,000, we have David. 500, we have Zerubbabel. And at, time, at the fluctuation point between um, a, a, BC and AD, we have Jesus. 6,000 years from today until the creation. And so since uh, we're tackling um, non-controversial and simple topics, let's uh, wrap up the invitation with answering the question, what is the secret of the universe? This is actually a very serious part of the sermon. And we have to look at God's book. We have looked at God's book of nature this morning, and I hope you take away that it's amazing and awesome. But it's not as awesome as our creator. God, as part of his plan, intends to stop time and destroy the physical universe. This is part of his plan, and it's because this part of creation is temporary. God plans to usher man into his eternal creation. There's two eternal places that have been prepared. The lake of fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Heaven has been prepared and is intended for God's children in his presence. Day of the Lord refers to the judgment of God. And sometimes in the scripture, it's even referring to the final judgment, which we're talking about today. And that is, what, that is when Jesus comes again, but not all of man will spend eternity in heaven. Unrepentant sinners will find themselves in the lake of fire, and so will the disobedient. But here's the thing. Not even Jesus knows when that day is. It truly is a secret. Matthew 24, verse 36, is one of the verses that tells us this information. And as Christians, we are here to share the gospel. We want to help people be ready. Matthew 24 and verse 44, we're encouraged. It says, therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We have water here this morning. 
If you are ready to confess Jesus as your Savior, is not, there is not a more convenient time. In a few minutes, we'll be partaking of the Lord's Supper, and we would so like and love to have you partake of that with us as a brother or sister. So there's no more convenient time, and we encourage you this time to come forward as we stand and sing.